0: The government of the United States might just be the most successful organisation in human history. It's a thought experiment perhaps best left to trained historians, but glance at the history of the 20th century and the list of missions accomplished with the help of the American taxpayer is startling. Global fascism and communism defeated? Check. Manned spaceflight? Check. The internet? Job done. But for the past 40 years at least, big government has had a really bad press. Might the pandemic change that? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Pridot, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is big government back? President Biden's next big legislative push is taking shape, a whopping infrastructure bill to add to the economic rescue package passed last month. It all amounts to a $5 trillion overhaul of America. In this episode, we'll find out how unprecedented the social safety net cast during the pandemic really is, how the demise of big government came about, and the risks inherent in its return. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the US Digital Editor. Charlotte, how's it going in New York?
1: It's fine in New York. I'm geekily obsessed with this ship, the Ever Given, which is stuck in the Suez Canal. I have been tracking problems with global supply chains and different things with the oil market and energy markets generally, and having an enormous container ship with its bow lodged into the ground and a dinky excavator trying to free it feels like the perfect metaphor for a lot of what's happening um, in global trade at the moment. But more interestingly, to the broader population, how are you? you? You're not in London.
0: I'm in Minneapolis. I'm on my first reporting trip in over a year, which is quite exciting. It's, it's strange. Travelling at the moment requires an enormous amount of paperwork. I think I will have had six COVID tests by the time this trip is over. And the hotel I'm staying in, while well, very nice, has a touch of Bates Motel to it. There are a lot of empty corridors and you so wander back to your room at night and glance over your shoulder a bit. But But it's great. I took the precaution of getting some advice from John Fasman on where to eat in Minneapolis before I left. And of course, he gave me lots of good mayonnaise-free recommendations. One of them, I have to report, is a restaurant that serves deep fried pig's uterus. So this is something Fasman tasted when he was here, but I've I've avoided, I'm afraid, because I'm more chicken than he is.
1: That feels like something the restaurant's just doing to show off that it's legit. I mean, how often does someone actually order that? You know what I feel like having tonight is uterus. I mean, that just, It's not a sentence that comes out of anyone's mouth.
2: Honey, that's great uterus. Yeah, it just doesn't work.
0: <laughs> and John, you're also about to head off on
2: a reporting trip. How excited are you about that? It's a good day here. First of all, my vaccinated mother is visiting her grandkids for the first time in over a year, which is delightful. Um, and then I'm getting on a plane this afternoon to St. Louis, to do some traveling and reporting, which I'm also I'm also really looking forward to. So both on the vaccination front and the travel front,
0: things are starting to slowly get a bit back to normal in the US. But one thing that is not back to normal is the role that the US government is playing in American life at the moment. Let's step back a little bit to take in the magnitude of what's happened just over this past year. The US government's been handing out cash like never before. The Trump administration first sent out $1,200 checks last March, then another set of $600 checks landed in December. Joe Biden's rescue package last month included $1,400 checks. Sasha Nauter, The Economist's public policy editor, has been writing about how the pandemic has recast the social safety net around the world. I've been getting her perspective on what makes America different.
3: America spends more than Almost any rich country, actually, um, as a share of, of GDP over this last year, by my count, it's it's well over ten percent of GDP that's been spent on, on on patching up the safety net, if you will, compared to, for example, five percent in in France, which traditionally spends much more. So America's really stuck out in terms of just the sheer. Number of dollars they've thrown at this, but also the principles, right? Things like completely unconditional cash transfers to most Americans. That's completely countercultural and very, very interesting. Most of the European policies have been focused on protecting jobs, whereas American policies seem to have been focused on protecting income. And I think it's the stimulus checks in particular that the rest of the world is looking at with interest. The only other countries that have really done sort of unconditional cash transfers. Uh, The only rich countries are are, are mostly in Asia, so Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore. But they've all been one-off, whereas America's now done three.
0: And Sasha, those direct payments are really striking. Another striking feature, and one that we've welcomed in our leader pages, is the expansion of the child tax credit, which by the best available estimates, looks like it's going to cut child poverty in America in, in half.
3: Absolutely. It's a policy that should be very warmly welcomed. I would add the caveat, by the way, that it will, by several estimates, uh, cut child poverty in half in the year that it's implemented, right? For now, it's a temporary, very nice goody. Um, But for me, the big question will be what happens in 2022? Because child poverty in America is still one of the worst child poverty rates in the OECD. And, you know, the underlying factors are, are still there. So let's see what happens after the year. But yes, it is striking. I mean, Both the amount, $3,000 a kid, if I'm not mistaken, which is significantly more than, for example, in Britain, as well as the number of families that will be included in this, I think are are, are really striking and, and, in my opinion, probably the best policy in there.
0: So Charlotte, the US government is undertaking this huge experiment with its safety net, but the changes are temporary because they've been passed through reconciliation. Voters will get a chance in a few years' time to decide whether they want to make them permanent or not. Do you think what we're seeing is a just a temporary you know, pandemic-induced shift on attitudes towards the safety net and social spending in America, or do you think something more fundamental and enduring is changing?
1: Well, I think the pandemic provided a prompt basically for a massive experiment. And as Sasha explained so well, America's COVID response was not only bigger than that of other countries, but it was also more of an experiment because of the lack of social safety net to date. Um, Not that it was totally lacking, but just on a much smaller scale than what you see in countries of close to equivalent wealth. And so I think that the history suggests that when you roll out social programs, they're pretty hard to roll back. Once you introduce something, it's hard to take it away. I think that's particularly the case for the tax credit for poor families. So a family would get $3,000 a year for each child between 6 and 17 and 3600 per child under 6. That has a huge impact. And so I think that that and hope that that is something that's hard to roll back. I don't know whether we're going to go to a system of cash payments to individuals in the same way that you've seen in the past year, but I think that the experiment is really interesting and seeing what happens in the coming year as the economy starts to open back up and what people do with that money, whether there's a big surge in spending, basically just what, what happens to the economy um, as it continues to open back up will be really interesting to see.
0: John, what do you think? Do you think when we look back at 2020 and 2021 in 10, 20 years' time, we'll see a turning point in Americans' attitudes to government and expectations of what government should do for them? Or do you think this is a temporary
2: pandemic-induced blip? I think it's far more likely this is a turning point. Nobody wants to run on increasing child poverty. So I expect the inertia favors the maintenance of this program, And more broadly, I think what we've seen from Democrats is a rejection of Clintonism, right? Joe Biden is shaping up to be maybe the most activist president since FDR, and he knows it, and he really sort of revels in that role. I think the hesitation you saw during the Obama administration, where they enacted a big stimulus in 2009, but then were reluctant to sort of sell it to people and explain what they were getting, that's gone. You see the administration fully standing behind this policy. So I think, assuming that this makes a difference in people's lives, and I expect it will, I think the sort of reflexive hostility toward big government on an economic level, which is what Republicans have sort of stood behind since Ronald Reagan, I think that's probably gone. It's not to say that everyone is going to welcome every expansion of the social safety net with open arms. I think that there are some real economic risks that I think Democrats might be overlooking. And beyond that, there'll be a fight over expansive government on cultural grounds, but I think concerns with big government as a matter of principle, concerns with deficit as a matter of principle, I would expect those are mostly gone. You touched on it there, but one of the significant changes here that I think does suggest we might be
0: seeing a more enduring shift is on the Republican side. I mean, for all of our lifetimes, really, the Republican Party has had this very strong, at least rhetorical commitment to shrinking government, and with Donald Trump as president, and with Donald Trump still as the leader of the Republican Party out of power, that's just not a big part of his platform at all. And so you don't have a very energized opposition party railing against these changes in the way that you would have 10, you know,
2: 15, 20 years ago. It's really shocking that for all the Republican fulminations about Democrats being socialists, that there was almost no argument on the merits against this program, which was a massive government expansion, a massive expenditure. You know, the Republican claims that Democrats are socialist are almost entirely cultural.
1: I do think, though, that you're going to see much more lively debate in the coming year as Biden tries to shift to what he calls his Build Back Better agenda, but basically this huge infrastructure bill, because that has a lot more in it to which Republicans could theoretically object, right? So one of the issue with the recovery package, the stimulus that was just passed, is that it was really popular on both sides of the aisle. Ordinary voters thought that this was a good idea. When you get into the infrastructure package, it could include basically a whole smorgasbord of different Democratic priorities, including not just infrastructure, as one might conventionally think about it, the construction of roads or bridges. But it, c- it could include things like tax credits for childcare, community colleges, of course, climate legislation. There's a lot of stuff that can get put in there. And so I think that in many ways will be a more interesting test for whether Republicans will bend or not.
2: All
0: right. Thank you both. We'll find out how big government went out of fashion in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, then you're missing out. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. Our U.S. pages this week look at the spike in the murder rate and how politics now rivals religion for its zealotry. The China section reports on the prospect of a boycott of next year's Winter Olympics in Beijing. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
2: If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking.
0: The Oscar nominated trial of the Chicago Seven is about the prosecution of anti war protest leaders in 1968. It's hippies versus the establishment.
2: This is what revolution looks like, real revolution.
0: We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. One of those in the dog was Jerry Rubin. With his bright yellow jersey and unkempt locks, he was an icon of the counterculture.
4: The youth are opposing a short-haired society, the short hair military society. And uh, long hair is a, is a, is a symbolic uh, expression of that rebellion and freedom.
0: A former reporter and transplant from Ohio to Berkeley, he had a knack for making headlines.
4: And so when they arrest us and jail us, the first thing they do, the very first thing they do is send us to the barber to cut our hair. Because they think that by cutting our hair, they can destroy our soul.
0: At a march in Washington, his tripped-out followers tried to levitate the Pentagon.
4: We have to find some courage
0: now. In the film, the young protesters are, spoiler alert, heroic victors.
1: How much is it worth to you? What's your price? To call off the revolution? My life.
0: But a sequel might show how the next round of the culture war Turned out
2: different. Negotiate? What is to negotiate? What is. Ronald
0: Reagan also used the moment to raise his profile.
2: All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest.
0: (laughs) The ex actor became governor of California by channeling the revulsion of older suburban voters toward the young student demonstrators. He mocked their appearance and condemned the university authorities for failing to discipline them.
4: I, Ronald Reagan,
2: do solemnly swear. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States.
0: But by the time he was inaugurated as president in 1981, Reagan had himself sparked a revolution with a profound impact on American politics.
2: For decades, we have piled,
4: deficit upon deficit, mortgaging our future and our children's future
2: for the temporary convenience of the present.
0: Starting at his inauguration, he single-handedly transformed political discourse with his attacks on big government.
2: In this present
4: crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem.
0: His tax-cutting program was so radical that his own vice-president, George Bush Sr., had called it voodoo economics. But a surge in Reagan's popularity after he survived an assassination attempt in March 1981 helped sway Congress. A 25% reduction in taxes passed later that year. Such was the force of his rhetoric. It's easy to misremember the Reagan years as a time of inexorable tax, deficit and spending cuts. But he raised all three at different times. The federal budget increased under his watch. Military spending, interest on the federal debt and the built-in expansion of welfare for older Americans, Social Security and Medicare, were to blame. Reagan's real achievement was to shift the tone of political debate. By the mid-80s, Democrats had taken up his assault on federal deficits. In the 1990s, a Democratic president would declare Reagan's victory complete.
2: We know and we have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington and we have to give the american people one that lives within its means the era of big government is over scenes like this are becoming commonplace in u.s. cities where cellular is available today this revolution in communications could make it possible for more and more people to have a phone in their car or even one that travels with you.
0: Reagan's total transformation of America's governing ideology was mirrored in Jerry Rubin's story. But that number is expected to grow considerably within the next few years during the cellular Revolution. Around the time the first cell phone launched in 1983, the Berkeley dropout landed a job on Wall Street. He organized networking events at the famous Studio 54 nightclub and became an early Apple investor, the archetypal yuppie and foot soldier of the Reagan revolution. Well, I really enjoyed the movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and features an excellent performance from Eddie Redmayne in particular. And Aaron Sorkin is doing an Economist Asks interview with Anna Kelvoy on next week's Economists ask So do go and find that wherever you get your podcasts. John, people often misremember Reaganism, don't they, as this period where the American government
2: shrunk radically. But the rhetoric and what actually happened are two different things. That's true. And the rhetoric around big government usually means something quite specific. I'm reading a book right now called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, which argues that race has been at the hostility of expanding the welfare state from the beginning it's a pretty compelling argument, right? A lot of Republicans have no problem with government, for instance, being big enough to make it harder for people to vote. Or in the case of the shooting we just saw in Colorado, Boulder tried to pass its own gun restriction laws, and those laws were preempted at the state level. So it's not really a hostility toward big government as such toward any government action. It has really been a hostility towards specific types of government actions and the fears that it might benefit people who are not on our side, right? It's the idea that government should act in our own interests and not the interests of those other people that has really hindered the expansion of the welfare state.
1: I'd also say that the definition of big government is quite flexible. So you just talked, John, about the welfare state, which is, of course, a hugely important component of what people refer to as big government. But when people rail against big government, often also it means government intrusion into a person's personal life. And that could include their decision of whether they can or can't buy a gun, their decision of whether they can or can't have an abortion, the decision of what they can or cannot say in the public square, obviously cancel culture being something that the right has seized on. And so there are all different versions of what big government might mean depending on the person defining it. And I think that over the course of Different presidencies, you've seen presidents try to frame the issue of big government in a different way. So, Barack Obama talked about not necessarily bigger government, but smarter government. And I do think that the attention to government regulation and what types of regulation are warranted, how you create a more nimble state that's actually responsive to the needs of Americans, rather than this enormous bureaucratic mess that actually stymies some of the um, efforts to meet goals that I think a majority of Americans would support, that that's another version of what people talk about when they think about big government. And so part of the challenge, I think, for Democrats is that it's easy for Republicans to say, we're just against all of this, right? Whether it's climate regulation that will tell you what kind of car you can buy, or Biden talking about gun control, or the welfare state. We're against all of that stuff. And the challenge for Democrats is thinking about how to frame this. And there's dissent within the Democratic Party, of course, about what their version of bigger and smarter government might look like. But that will be what's really interesting, I think, for Biden as he thinks about what to put in this infrastructure bill. Uh, going forward, how to try to build support for something that will be bigger. But I think he would argue would also be smarter and help to solve some of these long term problems that you see in American life.
0: We've made the case so far that what we're seeing is likely to be an enduring shift. But if you wanted to make the counter to that, I think you'd point to polling that shows that Americans just have a fundamentally different set of attitudes about the extent to which people make their own luck or not when compared with Europeans. So I was looking at some Pew Global Attitude surveys, and if you ask Germans whether the factors that contribute to success in life are broadly within the control of each individual, about 30% of Germans think that's the case. So a clear majority of Germans think that it's too simplistic or it's flat wrong to say that you make your own luck. In America, 57% of Americans think that individuals control the factors that contribute to their own success. So put that another way, in simplistic terms, a majority of Americans in normal times don't believe in misfortune. COVID-19 changes all of that. And that's why I think, to Charlotte's point, you've often seen safety net expansions in times of crisis because those normal set of social assumptions about who's deserving as what completely change. And then because of the way the political system operates, once a program is put in place, it can be quite hard to undo.
1: There is a lot of other stuff, though, that Biden does want to do in addition, right? Whether it's support, as we were talking about, for community colleges or child care, climate. I mean, these are things that were not to date part of what he's done. And because of America's legislative process, he's trying to Jam them all together into one thing. And you can have people who like ice cream and a different set of people who like steak and some people like avocado. You don't necessarily want to mix them all up together, right? John Fasman would probably reject that as a meal. And so the interesting political thing is whether you can jam all of this different stuff into the infrastructure package and still get broad support or whether tactically you have more success breaking off a few different initiatives.
2: I mean, I expect he'll try to break up some of them, right? I expect given that, you know, that he can pass bills in the House with a simple majority, I would expect that he puts every single issue on an up or down vote in the House, waits for it to die in the Senate, and then uses that either as the excuse to push for filibuster reform or tries to jam them all through reconciliation. But I would think that you'll see him over the course of the spring and summer make an argument for each item on his wish list on the the merits and force an up or down vote in the House.
1: It's going to be a busy year.
2: Busy year. Thank you both. We'll be back in a
0: moment to discuss the risks that come with high levels of government spending. The American economy appears to be bouncing back rapidly in 2021. Might the Biden stimulus be too generous? It's something our economics editor, Henry Kerr, has been raising the alarm over in recent weeks. So I asked him what he made of the plans for new infrastructure spending.
4: Interestingly, it's slightly unclear how the infrastructure bill is going to be funded. So there are reports this week that this absolutely enormous $3 trillion proposal is coming Previously, the Biden administration has always sort of hinted that it would look to pay for its infrastructure spending by raising taxes, perhaps by putting up the corporate tax rate, perhaps the top rates of income tax. I think it's pretty unlikely that Congress would pass three trillion dollars worth of tax rises. Some of that spending will be deficit financed. You still can make a case for debt financed infrastructure spending in that the returns in terms of growth and well-being, a sort of well above what you pay in debt interest costs. But perhaps the more interesting question now is whether if you have a lot more deficit spending in the short term, you're going to overheat the economy. And given how much stimulus is in the economy, I think that is a risk. And if you add to it, that risk is going to go up. So I wouldn't personally add add more to America's deficit than they've already done if it could be if it could be avoided.
0: Let's talk a bit about the balance of those risks, because this is something you've been writing about a lot this year. We've had a cover story on it. The argument that economists who are advising the White House would make, I think, is, look, you can run the economy really hot without inflation picking up. We saw that before COVID-19 came along. The economy was very hot. Donald Trump pushed through a tax cut. Inflation didn't pick up and and actually, you know, there's more slack in the system than we think. And so sort of something fundamentally has changed, you can you can shovel money into the system without having to worry too much about inflation. And then they might also say, well, even if inflation did pick up a bit, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. So tell me how you see the balance of risks here.
4: Well, I think that's all basically right. And we've written a lot in The Economist that the hot labour market of the late 2010s was a very good thing and it wasn't provoking inflation. And I think that's essentially correct. I think what's interesting about the current conjuncture, however, is that we're not just sort of experimenting on one dimension. We're in a situation where we don't know how fast the organic rebound, if you like, from the pandemic is going to be. There's quite a bit of disagreement about that. You've got this big, piled-up pool of savings that Americans have accumulated during the crisis, partly as a result of the various stimulus measures, and no one really knows how much of that they're going to spend when things reopen. We've got a Federal Reserve with a new mandate or a new way of thinking about inflation that says it deliberately wants to overshoot. So you've got lots of different experiments going on at once. So even if you do take the view that the late 2010s show we can push a bit harder without worrying about inflation, which I think is correct, It's nonetheless the case that there's so much uncertainty here at once that I think it's reasonable to ask, is it wise to go all guns blazing?
0: Yeah, just to focus on the downside risks for a sec. So the concern would be the economy overheats, inflation overshoots, the Federal Reserve has to step in raising rates. And so many Americans, and businesses have got used to these incredibly favourable terms for borrowing, that you get a horrible credit crunch, which has some, you know, unpredictable, nasty consequences.
4: Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, inflation is bad in itself if you get too much. Some people say that to worry about inflation means you're, you're a sort of rampant capitalist who only cares about investors. In fact, the cost of inflation show up very clearly in, for example, happiness surveys. And when Rich countries have been through periods of high inflation in the past. They've seemed very concerned about it in the polling. So I don't think it's 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 right to say that it, it only matters to investors or bondholders or or, or whatever. So you've got inflation as a well worry in itself. And then, of course, you've got the issue that if the Federal Reserve does what it's meant to do and inflation surprises on the upside, then it will raise raise rates. And that's painful because asset prices are very high. Uh, not just financial markets, also house prices. All asset prices in the economy are really high based on the notion that interest rates are going to be low for a long ter- time. So if that turned out to be wrong because the Fed needed to fight inflation, that's another thing that a lot of people would have reason to fear. One
0: of the strange things about this experiment, to my mind at least, is that in Europe, where voters are supposed to like big government, government's doing comparatively little in terms of fiscal stimulus. In America, where anyone who's followed politics for the last couple of decades has, has picked up this idea that America a small government-loving nation, is embarking on this absolutely gigantic experiment in big government. This is a real sort of scrambling of categories, isn't it?
4: Yes, it is. I mean, I th- think that's partly because America has discovered just how much a privilege it has in the bond markets, certainly versus Europe, where, you know, the fact that there's a currency union, the euro complicates things, but also many countries like Italy went into this crisis more indebted. Um, But you could argue the other side of that, which is that a lot of the big stimulus in America uh, has been these cash transfers to households. Historically, people on the right, or certainly on the libertarian right, have always said that actually the one way in which government can be effective is just by moving money around. Uh, It doesn't involve a lot of bureaucracy. It's not, you know, a complicated programme. And it's sort of simple, right thing for government to do if it wants to help the disadvantaged so, uh, yes, it's, it's a big deficit, and yes, uh, there's a lot of spending going on relative to Europe, but to the extent it's these cash transfers, that's not as cleanly a, a sort of left-right thing.
0: There's more from Henry on the global impact of the Biden stimulus on our Money Talks podcast this week. Charlotte, we've talked a bit about difference in attitudes to spending, government spending. On the part of Europeans and Americans. But one common thing I think is if you poll Americans and Europeans, what they basically want is what we all want. They would like low taxes and lots of government spending. And in normal times, that's impossible. But as Henry alluded to when he talked about America's privilege in the bond market, it turns out, as the US government, you can borrow unlimited amounts of money basically for free or close to for free. And that allows the government to spend a lot without raising taxes, which in some senses is what the polling suggests Americans would really like. But there is inherent in that this risk that if inflation picks up, all that borrowing is going to cost you a lot. How much of the businesses you talk to in New York worry at the moment about inflation picking up?
1: Inflation is really the hot topic, I have to say, across different types of asset managers and different types of companies. So in energy, where I spend a lot of time, there's been a big run up in oil prices since the start of the year, you saw some spikes in gas prices, also across different grains and metal commodities, there are people talking about the possibility of a super cycle with constrained supply, and uh, increasing demand. Those are factors that contribute to the overall inflation picture, but are in many ways, actually independent from what Henry has just described in terms of the effect of this three-pronged economic experiment that America's running. But together, this adds up to a big, big question about how quickly inflation will rise and whether it's problematic for broader growth. And I don't think anyone really at this point has a good answer for that. But I think politically that the broader question of government spending and government deficits is a huge one, particularly for Republicans who historically have made this a core part of something that they care about. And this is really being put to the test. How genuine is that concern? Or as a country, are we just abandoning the idea that deficits matter?
2: We are seeing sort of the Bernie Sanders experiment come to life, right? His position has always been, look, don't worry about deficits, Inflation we can deal with on the back end. Just run the economy really hot, easy money, spend what you want, and so we're going to see the consequences now. The consequences may be very high inflation. I think the the most interesting factor in that three pronged experiment is what happens to the glut in savings. I think to the extent that it's held by, you know, middle class or lower families, it's going to come back into the economy quite quickly, and you will see the economy running much hotter than you know the early Trump years where there was a lot of easy money around too. So I think what that adds up to is both political parties in America seem okay with a hot economy and easy money.
1: Yeah, well, what will be interesting is when people start paying higher prices for stuff, to what they credit that, you know? So when the it's $4 gasoline, as opposed to, you know, for much of the past year, I've been filling up my car's tank for well under $3. I mean, that's a really big shift. And who people blame, you know? I think that we'll see that over the next few months.
0: I've been thinking a little bit recently about Joe Biden's political superpower, which is to make really quite radical things just seem reasonable and mainstream. I mean, Can you imagine, John, to your point, what would be happening in American politics now if we had a President Sanders or President Warren who was pursuing exactly the same policies that the Biden White House is pursuing? I think there's a chance there might be a much bigger backlash because it would be seen as you know, crazy, out-of-control
2: government spending. But because Biden is Biden, somehow it doesn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. Politically, it would be much different if it were, you know, Democratic socialist Bernie Sanders throwing all this money around than it is Uncle Joe. Folks, here's the deal. It's just a little money. Remember what I said before. It's a much easier sell for him.
1: It's also just worth remembering how broadly supported that stimulus was. So though you hear the skepticism from Henry in a poll that was taken early March by the Morning Consult and Politico, 59 percent of Republicans at least somewhat agreed with the $1.9 trillion stimulus, and 75 percent of all registered voters either strongly backed it or somewhat backed it. So that's a pretty good reminder of the politics versus the economics of this bill.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's worth noting that despite the Reagan revolution and how Americans talked about government, America, like other Western countries, is basically subject to Wagner's law. There was a German economist, Adolf Wagner, who said that as societies get richer, the share of GDP taken by government consumption basically increases. And it's increased more slowly in America than in many other Western countries, but the trend is pretty clearly upward. And what's happening now looks like the latest turn of that ratchet.
2: Can I just make the point that with Passover around the corner, that's a much more benign law than I expected from someone named both Adolf and Wagner? (laughs) (laughs) All All right, it's quiz time. The Economist
0: archive shows the paper rapidly coming to terms with Ronald Reagan as a serious presidential contender during the 1980 campaign. In the issue of June 14th, the paper profiled Nancy, the perfect political wife, noting the genuine tenderness between the couple. Mrs. Reagan, herself a former movie actor, enjoyed glowing reviews until the time came to redecorate the dilapidated White House. She used private donations rather than government funds, but the press attacked her extravagance nevertheless. Which item served up the most trouble?
1: I have no idea. There's so many possibilities.
2: I know. Um, Lots of Um, mirrors, maybe?
1: Oh, that's good. I think that she splashed out on sort of weird, old, very antique, expensive cases in which to display, I don't know, awards that Ronald Reagan and she had won.
0: It was more prosaic than that. It was New China. Apparently, the New China set, which was comprised of over 4,000 separate items, cost $200,000. All this was at a time when cuts to school lunch budgets meant that ketchup was reclassified as a vegetable. Nancy's role extended to controlling the president's schedule by consulting an astrologer. Ronald Reagan joined Lincoln and FDR in the pantheon of great Aquarian presidents. Joe Biden's election means that his star sign has now produced more presidents than any other. Which is it?
1: I can't keep track of star signs. I have a very accomplished sister who works in a corporate environment who asks interviewees what their sign is. and
0: <laughs> Why does why she do that?
1: I, you know, I, I could pretend that it was to throw them off, but I think that she actually genuinely wants to know.
0: <laughs> I love that. Okay.
1: <laughs> she does the thing where if you tell her what your sign is, she'll look at you and kind of squint and nod in a knowing manner. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. But I don't know what any of the signs mean.
2: Yeah, I'm a Taurus, so I'll say Taurus.
0: I know nothing about this stuff either. But Joe Biden, it turns out, is a Scorpio. And there have now been more Scorpio presidents than any other. Scorpios are apparently said to be driven, intuitive, and not afraid of change. Five others have been president in addition to Biden. John Adams, James Polk, James Garfield, Teddy Roosevelt, and Warren Harding. So mixed bag there. Rather ominously, two of those died in office and no Scorpio has ever had a second term.
1: (laughs) That makes sense for Scorpios.
0: You did that knowing, look. (laughs) I think you're getting into this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks to Nicola Rolfast and John Shields for putting the podcast together. If you like it, please let everyone know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email, radio at is the address. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.